Wind it up. That looks like it's recording. That's what it says. I got to trust it. Joe, what's up, man? Hey, what's good, brother? How are you? Everything all right? Yes, we're doing great out here. Just gearing up. Gearing up for a wild uh, next few weeks um, in America. Yeah, so... Yeah, we are uh, we are fear and loving with Ranch and Joe Nice today. Hopefully, you guys are enjoying Fractal Beach. Shout out to my boy Dillard out there playing today, and um, yeah, so we are here today. Um, fear and loving is uh, usually a roundtable discussion where we kind of talk about uh, the big hot topics of the day, what's going on. You know, often with the social justice focus, um, you can find us at. Uh, Real Fear and Loving on Facebook, Instagram, and you can look up the Fear and Loving channel on YouTube. Uh, but today we are we are here to provide information about voting to you guys. Right. I know you're excited. You should be. We, we know our stuff over here and no bias, no BS today. Um, we're just going to get right into it. And, you know, I think we like to really lay, we, we, Joe, Joe likes to do this, but I'm kind of taking it myself of, you know, I like the idea of presenting some definitions, getting real about some, some like real and like, you know, you can't argue with me with it about it in the beginning, you know, right here to start. So um, let's give them the, the, the info about voting. Yeah. Well, it, it, Richard, first of all, I want to thank all of the festival organizers that thought enough of us and the work they are doing now during the middle of this pandemic, since neither of us are playing shows right now. We both love our music. We love our bass music, in fact. And, we've now found ourselves in this new space of of social and political activism because we got to be passionate about something in life and this is now where i decided to put my energy and i'm sure this is something you've always been doing also so and i'm first of all i'm thankful to be doing this with you i'm thankful to share this space for the next 30 or 35 minutes or so so we can educate the public about voting educate the public about voting and and much like you said, when I do these conversations, I like to start off with, with definitions because everyone is entitled to their own opinions, but nobody's entitled to their own facts. So we yeah, talk about voting. trying to say before. It's okay. It's quite all right. It's quite all right. You know, it's that whole DJ thing, being able to know what you want when you want it before you even know you want it. It's that it, you can't turn it off. But Where it come from? Yeah, of course, you know, voting, you know, voting, people understand, you know what, hey, every third every you know around the third or fourth of november the first tuesday of every november every couple of years i get to go to a polling station to vote but what am i actually doing what is voting voting is the individual decision to reflect personal values and political rights to represent the collective or what we call the electorate or what another synonym for the electorate is the body politic so essentially you individual go ahead and say hey you know what this particular this particular political candidate represents my personal values and my political values my political rights and i feel like voting for that person and if enough people vote for that person that person gets to represent the collective and what we in the united states likes to be called a representative democracy so that is what voting is. Voting is saying, hey, you know what? I have, I have rights to vote. It's my right to vote for this particular person based upon a particular set of values or initiatives or ideologies. And I want this person to represent me and other people like me in a democracy. 
It might not be a bad time to remind people that it is not mandatory, right? Voting is not mandatory. No, no, voting is not mandatory. And we'll, in a few minutes, we'll discuss how how voting rights have evolved over centuries. Yes, yes. And the definition for rights, we're going to go right into that one. It's it's your moral or legal entitlement to have something or to behave in a particular way. Absolutely. And um, that one is uh, it's a hot, it's, um, it's, would you say it's subjective? It's not, I don't know if it's subjective, but it feels so, so it almost feels that way because it's, it feels like so many different people use that word in different ways and they think they i guess what it is is every individual in america seems to have a different idea of what rights they should or shouldn't have or someone else should or shouldn't have it's always an argument you know yeah richard i I think the best way to answer your question is it depends on what kind of rights we're discussing if if we're talking about legal rights then well there's really not much ambiguity with that because there's laws that say hey you have the right to do this so for example in with miranda rights if you get arrested the first thing the cop says to you is you have the right to remain silent anything you can everything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law so that is your right you have that right legally to say nothing for fear of violating your Fifth Amendment rights of self-incrimination, or you have the right to say, hey, you know what, cop, I hate your guts, you're part of the Blue Klux Klan, and your breath stinks. Okay, you have the right to say that. Now, when we're talking about human rights and civil rights, that, that becomes a bit more subjective and a bit more ambiguous because so much of, yeah, so much of human rights and, and civil rights are based upon quite honestly, society and who you are as a member of society and class and political status, et cetera. Granted, there are certain rights that we talk about in the Constitution. The Constitution says there are certain unalienable rights that we all are supposed to have as Americans. And, but granted, as we know that the America has changed over time, those rights have changed. Uh, I mean, let's. I mean, let's let's take a look at this a little bit deeper, not to belabor the point, but at one point in the United States, it was a white person's right to own black people. That changed in 1865 with the ratification of the 13th Amendment. 13th Amendment said, "Well, you know, hey, black folks, you all aren't slaves anymore. White people don't own you." Okay, awesome, great. So you see how things have changed, and later on, we'll talk about the amendments and how rights the right to vote has changed over time multiple times absolutely well um i i think sort of tying into that um you know it's it's not i guess that it is a right uh in some civic duty i don't know if it is a right but i'll I'll do the definition of civic duty so of course sure uh, ensures that democratic values um that are part of the u.s constitution are upheld and I, I think you could also say it's, it is also civic duty also applies to being the responsibilities of a citizen. Absolutely, absolutely, um, absolutely, absolutely. Now, and, uh, Richard, something you mentioned earlier on, a couple, literally about 30 seconds ago, you said it ensures that democratic values are part, that are part of the United States Constitution are upheld. As we've done 
several chats before. And one of my favorite documents to pull out, none other than, hey, look what we have here. My copy of the United States Constitution, okay? And there are several amendments in the United States Constitution that discuss elections, discuss electing certain senators. The 17th Amendment talks about election of senators. The 20th Amendment talks about the terms, term, term limit, terms for presidents and members of Congress. The 22nd Amendment talks about term limits for the president of the United States, and they put that in right after FDR because they elected FDR four times. And you're like, no, we can't have you being president 16 years. We got to put a limit to this. Um, there is the 23rd Amendment gave Washington, D.C. Um, the right to vote in presidential elections because technically Washington, D.C. is not a state, and only the people who are living in states were allowed to vote. And the 25th Amendment talks about presidential succession. But there are three amendments that really highlight what the vote rights for voting. 15th Amendment. And prior to this, the Constitution didn't specify who, who could vote. Uh, or, and it was, you know, it was mostly about being white or having money. Well, how did, well, how did that... Well, well, in those days, those were synonymous because yeah. black people didn't have assets. So how did they, do you know, how did they enforce that? Was it real, if they didn't have rights, so only, you could only vote if you were white? Is that, and a man? Well, it's not in the constitution. It's one of those implied situations because let's not forget this document that was ratified on March 4th, 1789 was written by a bunch of wealthy white guys who owned enslaved Africans. So naturally, you know, when you talked about the Declaration of Independence said all men are created equal. They didn't mean black men and they certainly didn't mean women. So the implication, whether express, expressly implied or indirectly implied, was to have white men be the only people to vote. And much like the electoral system now, up until 2008 with Barack Obama, every president that we've ever had in the United States has been, for the most part, a wealthy white guy. So it naturally stands to reason that when in 1789, when this document was written, that they didn't need to put anything to specify who was allowed to vote and who wasn't because the people, it's, it's, the, new ad, it's the advent of the new golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. So they have all the gold, the money, they made the rules. So then there was the 15th Amendment. Is that what right. we're going to... Right. The 15th Amendment said, and there's a line, there's a specific clause in the amendment that says, race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So didn't matter what race, what biological, social, or relevant categorization you belong to, race. It didn't matter what color your skin was, whether you were light, white, or brown, or dark chocolate like myself. It didn't matter, and it said previous condition of servitude. So if you were an enslaved person, you now had the right to vote. So 15th Amendment said, yep, black folks, you can vote. But it didn't, but still, there's nothing about women there. Nothing about women being allowed to vote. So that's where the the 19th Amendment comes in. Where the 19th Amendment, the specific clause in the 19th Amendment says, on account of sex. So that basically opened the door for women to vote. But still, black women weren't necessarily getting the opportunities to vote because the opportunities to vote were really not only based upon, you eliminated the racial, the racism with voting, 
but the sexism with voting was still there. So women were allowed to vote, but you didn't have that many people voting when the 19th Amendment was ratified. Then the 24th Amendment, it's kind of a strange one when it talks about the poll tax, where if you didn't pay your poll tax, you weren't allowed to vote for federal elections, but you don't really talk about that much in terms of people, the rights of individual citizens, American citizens to vote. Mm. But the 26th Amendment, again, there was nothing in the amendment saying how old you had to be to vote. So sure, if you were, I mean, it's con perfectly conceivable that in, let's say, 1798 or 1804, you could have said, hey, you know what, I'm nine years old. My daddy has money. I'm allowed to vote. Well, there's nothing saying that you have to be of a certain age limit to vote. Hmm. But so the 26th Amendment, which was one of the most recently passed amendments, says and the specific clause in that amendment says, who are 18 years of age or older to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any account of age. So you have to be at least 18 years of age or older on election day in order to vote. So those are the three major amendments that granted rights to vote in an election. Now there, again, the 23rd Amendment I mentioned earlier, that allowed residents of Washington, D.C. to vote in the presidential election. Mm. Because in years past, because Washington, D.C. is still not a state, that residents of Washington, D.C. were not allowed to vote in the presidential election because the presidential election allows for electoral college and electoral college is based on the state. Since D.C. is not a state, can't vote for president of the United States in D.C. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I feel like, you know, with the uh, elderly generation that votes the past few times, I almost feel like we could throw a, another one in there and you hit 80 years old and your voting goes out the window. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to bet that when I'm 80, I'm not going to be holding on to my voting, my ability to vote for dear life when the youth are going to know, you know, without doubt, have more of the understanding and, and tools to like lead and make decisions around policy than I would. I don't know what I, I it's just it's it's always wild for me to see this kind of like old really, really, really old generate 80 plus, you know, like that type of age range, feeling like they're they somehow or got it, they, their wisdom is going to apply to the, the modern society. It just doesn't, you know, it but that's just an opinion, guys. I, I said it wouldn't be biased, but I, I broke the rule. Uh, the rule. I should have. It's it. okay. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, ramble over. We'll pull it back in, um, and may, maybe it's a good time to to let folks know that they can how to how to determine the voter eligibility. I think is something we, we were going to switch. Are you? Are, we want, you we, want, we want to talk about voter eligibility, but we want to talk. You know, we talked about. We also want to make sure that people are actually registered to vote. And at the time of this recording, we're, we are exactly 21 days away from the presidential election and all the other elections that are going to be taking place. So what we want everybody to do, if you have not registered to vote, is to go to vote.gov, vote.gov. And there's, there, the site is replete with information about your voting rights for each individual state, all 50 states and United States territories, depending on which election you're voting for in the United States territories, of which there are five, and, and, the, and the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C. So we urge each of you, we're not going to tell you who to vote for because that's not the intent of this, this, this workshop. The intent of this workshop is to make sure that everybody 
knows what to do and understands how the voting process works. And we want to help get as many people voting to vote as we possibly can. So go to vote.gov and they have all the information there for you. And then, and then we also found the usa.gov slash voting. Absolutely. It's another helpful website. Absolutely. It's another helpful website. Vote.gov, usa.gov slash forward slash voting. Right. Get your info in. And um, yeah, did we, so, and then I had a note that, you know, uh, I wanted to know, I think you might've, you might've told me this, but uh, that 250 million people are eligible to vote this year. Is that right? Well, that was, that was based on the 2000, that was based on a, a, found, a study from the Knight Foundation. The Knight Foundation recently published, a, let's say recently, it was back in February. They, they did a study about the 2016 election and they talked about how of the 330 or 328 or 330 million mm -hmm. people in the United States, there are approximately 250 million people that are what's called in the voting age population, okay? Of that 250 million people, 230 million people are eligible to vote. So in, in a population of 330 million, 230 million are eligible to vote. So there's 100 million people in the United States that cannot or pro, are prohibited for voting or do not vote for a variety of reasons. Some of them are age, and some of them are based upon voter eligibility or ineligibility. And I know that's something we wanted to talk about is who's eligible to vote and who yeah, is gotta, ineligible to vote. Yeah, we got a few different, uh, we, we, we dove in to make sure we, 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 we had them all here when right. we spoke. And um, so obviously uh, someone who is a non-citizen uh, as well as someone who's a non-citizen, but may also be a permanent legal resident. Correct. Uh, that doesn't, that doesn't get you clearance. So that's a, that's kind of an obvious one in terms of who gets to vote in the United States. Um, there's also under 18. We talked about how they changed uh, the, uh, the, that amendment set that up. Uh, and then see, we also have, this one was odd. You, you, you can't be a U.S. citizen during the time of the election as that's living in a U.S. territory. Correct. You would right. think maybe that would fly you under the radar, but apparently it is, uh, it's one that does not. Right. Or that specific rule with regards to U.S. citizens living in a U.S. territory, that only applies for voting for the presidential election, which quite honestly is somewhat tangentially related to the 23rd Amendment of the United States with regards to Washington, D.C. residents not being eligible to vote for the presidential election. Because... The D Washington DC is a district, the United States territories are territories, neither of them territories or districts are states. And again, electoral college, states, presidents, if you're not a state, if you live in a state, if you don't live in a state, even though you're a citizen, you can't be voting for the president. So that actually does make some sort of sense. No, we, won't, we won't mention the electoral college today. I don't no, want to get no, that. No, that's, 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 um, that's the rabbit hole we don't want to go. Uh, no. Uh, finally, um, Folks with psychiatric disorders, like serious uh, inhibition uh, to, to their mental uh, cognizance, it depends on the state, but there's definitely levels in which you won't be able to vote in that instance. Same goes with felons. People talk about felons not, I hear people say felons can't vote, period, outright, but 
uh, you definitely, certain states have more restrictions around that than others. I think I, think I saw there's some felons get to vote in about half of the states. And um, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so then, I don't know, maybe you, what were, what were we thinking next? I'm, I'm, I kind of lost our place here. No, no, it's all good. I, and again, just, and I want to make sure that all the viewers and our audience understands that we're not telling you who to vote for, but again, you have a civic duty based upon constitutional rights where we defined about 20 minutes ago in this conversation, you have the right to vote. Also, the, the, the flip side to the record or the B side of that would be you also have the right to not vote. So if you don't feel that any of these political candidates represent your political values or your personal rights, you don't have to vote. But it, there's a lot of countries around the world that don't give their citizens the opportunity to vote, or they give their citizens the opportunity to vote for one political candidate. And we in America, we at least have the remnants of a civil democracy. So we at least, right. I think it's incumbent upon all of us to exercise our 15th, 19th, or 26th Amendment rights accordingly. It's worth at least thinking about doing it for 20 minutes. You know, like if it even lasts that long. Questions, have a conversation, deter- come to the realization if you should or shouldn't versus just picking not to because without any sort of a, a thought, I, th- I think it does, it does pay some respect to the fact that others do not get it. Um, I, I think we do also want you to vote, uh, you know, on... Uh, whatever candidate you think would uh, be most pro uh, sound system culture. Um, I know I am. I'm just kidding. <laughs> the nice. sound system culture nice. candidate. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. So what, um, what can you tell us about kind of how there are different elections? So it's not all just the four year November 3rd presidential election. There's more. Yeah. There's more to it. I mean, sure, every four years on the first Tuesday of every November, we vote for a new president. And along with that, along for the ride, is a vice president. But there's other elections that take place. For example, where I live in North Carolina, the state attorney general is up for election. The state insurance commissioner is up for election. Back where I used to live in Baltimore, there are certain congressional seats that are up and certain senatorial seats that are eligible for for, for turnover. The city council president is up for re-election. The mayor of Baltimore is up for election. There are certain judgeships on the federal and circuit and district level that are up for election where I live in North Carolina and in many other states across the United States. City states attorneys and attorney generals are up for election. I know that's the situation here in the United in, in where I live in North Carolina. Also, there are certain districts within what we call the House of Representatives. And there are 435 members of the House of Representatives in the United States. And some of those seats are up for election. So it's not just saying, hey, every four years, I'm going to vote for a president. No, in fact, realistically, every couple of years, there's going to be some elections of some type, which is why there's why every two years elections for particular candidates in the House and the Senate of the United States are so important because so much of our legislation comes, quite honestly, from the House and Senate. And then if it passes in the House, it goes to the Senate. If it, goes, if it gets approved in the Senate, 
then the president can either sign it into law, sign the bill into law, or use the power of veto to say, no, 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 I don't like this, send it back down, revise it, come up with something better. And yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's important to note too, those other, those other uh, officials that you mentioned, especially uh, in, the, in the judicial system or the criminal justice system, attorney general, uh, you know, governors, judges, things. I mean, to, this is the opportunity for us to do our best to put in people that will not be corrupt and make our lives harder or more difficult or, you know, just, uh, you know, those types that the ones that end up getting in leadership positions, sometimes for many, many terms, many, we have collectively found that there's a lot, there is a real opportunity for people to be corrupt. If that is the way they're going to be and going to lead, then that's going to hurt your bottom line or hurt your health, whatever it is, your streets. I mean, there's all types of things that are uh, affected by, by not just by just essentially not caring about who it is. So right, I, right. I'm learning through to try to build on my civic duty to at least think about, can I go and look at these people and maybe find out um, what their record is on corruption and represent us as an organization you can look up uh, online and they are all about um, putting forth uh, support for candidates that you can trust in that way. So Absolutely. that was my tangent there. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, Richard, I think I think I want to make sure that everybody understands this. Part of the reason why we vote is to create laws that serve, and I mentioned this terminology earlier on, the body politic, or what we like to say as the electorate. Now, so much of the reason why we, you and I have been doing so much of this work online in terms of educating the public about the racism that's happening and the, the, the violence in the streets and the protest movements that are taking place, not only in the United States, but across the world and many other countries, is it, it's rooted in systemic change. Now, there are two ways that you get systemic change. One of the ways you get systemic change is through a protest. And I'm currently reading this wonderful book right now called How to Read a Protest. And let's not forget, let's remember that a protest is a marketing plan for a grievance. And the other way you get some sort of systemic change is via legislation. How do you get that through legislation? You get political representatives that represent the values of the many. There's a particular, I'll never forget this in one of my classes, I started off a, a, um, a paper with a vocal clip from the movie, The Wrath of Khan, when Dr. Spock is wrapped inside of a glass and, and, and Captain Kirk is standing on the outside of the glass. Now you're talking my language. Right? And, and, Captain, and, and Dr. Spock looked at Captain Kirk and said, logic dictates that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. That quote right there, you could summarize public administration, nonprofit administration, and quite honestly, electoral politics in the United States. Because public servants need to understand that the needs of the many, democracy, outweigh the needs of the few or the one. So that is why we vote. Yeah, and we, and we, I think we, we can agree, and so many of us out there I'm sure can agree, and so many of these people who maybe don't like to vote or wonder if they should vote especially, I think we all re realize that how voting is done, how that system that we have um, operates is often kind of not fitting the, the, with the, the times. So we do need to, we do want to see uh, how to change, find out how to change the infrastructure of voting, which right, sounds right. like a novel concept, but I mean, we, we can do that as voters. Mm -hmm. It just takes time and we do need to uh, come up with those ideas as to how we can do 
voting on a local level differently. And then once enough of the local level adopts this new change to voting, then maybe it'll happen on the macro scale. And, and I figured that would be a good time to, to just talk about ranked choice voting. Yeah, but before we get to the ranked choice voting part, I also wanted to make sure that I highlight something that we, you just mentioned a couple of seconds ago. Thank you for mentioning this. I mean, we talked about systemic change, and I mentioned this earlier that a couple of hundred years ago, it was legal for white people to own black people as human beings. And black people were considered three-fifths of a human being for tax purposes and was part of law. Let's not forget that at one point, every United States citizen did not have equal protection under the law. That's why we had the 14th Amendment. That's why we had the 14th Amendment. That was the alarm. That was how we had the 14th Amendment, to make sure that everybody gets equal protection under the law. At one point, it was illegal to make and transport alcohol in the United States. Then people were like, oh, you know what? Yeah, let's, 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 not, let's not do that. Let's, let's create an amendment that repeals that previous amendment. So the 21st Amendment was written to repeal, I think, the 19th Amendment, if I'm not mistaken. So systemic change, there is plenty of evidence of voting for certain political candidates mm -hmm. to create the systemic change that advances United States society forward. Now, you mentioned ranked choice voting. Ranked choice voting was there's a book by a former general named Henry Martin Robert. And the name of the book is called Robert's Rules of Order. And this type of ranked choice voting system is discussed at length in the book, Robert's Rules of Order. And ranked choice voting, there's Maine is currently a ranked choice voting state, but although there are other jurisdictions in the United States that have RCV. And it's a system of voting that makes democracy more fair and functional. And what it is, is instead of voting for a particular political party, you vote for a political candidate in order of choice. So you might say, okay, well, I like candidate A's platform the most, but then I like candidate B's next, I like candidate C, then I like candidate D. Now, ranked choice voting works best when you're electing a single political candidate, like a mayor, like a United States president, for example, like a senator, senator, like a Senate, like a senator. This is currently happening in Maine with Lisa Savage and Susan Collins. And for the life of me, Lisa Savage is the Green Party candidate. I can't remember the Republic, the Democratic Party um, candidate, but they're on an RCV system now. And the RCV best represents democracy. Now, what happens is you take, you have an, an aggregate. So let's say you have a thousand people that are in a particular city. A thousand people and you have a thousand people and 600 people vote for candidate a another 250 vote for candidate b another 100 vote for candidate c and another 50 vote for candidate d candidate d is instantly eliminated because they have the fewest number of votes in that first situation now if you have a particular, it, now the idea with ranked choice voting is you have to have a majority, which means 50% plus one. So let me make, so let me, so just so I have the numbers a little bit clearer, let me use some different numbers. That way I don't set myself up the majority on this example of the first runoff. So let's say candidate A has 450 votes, candidate B has 250, candidate C has 200, candidate D has 100. Candidate D is eliminated. Now what happens with candidate D's preferences, they get reordered 
in terms of rank. So anybody that voted for candidate D first, they'll say, okay, well, all your first votes, they're out the window. But now we're going to take your second second preference and your third preference and then allocate them to the particular candidates so you can eventually reach a majority. So in my example where I said candidate A has 450, candidate B has 250, candidate C has 200, candidate D has 100, okay? Let's say of that candidate D, of that 100 votes, there are 55 votes for candidate A and another 45 for candidate B. And again, we're dealing with a population of 1,000. And in order to win the election, you need majority plus one. So you need 501 votes. So with that split of 100 votes from candidate D, where you have 55 going to candidate A and 45 going to candidate B, candidate A would win with 505 votes. The election will be over. Now, that, now this is what's called in a RCV system, what's called an instant runoff. So if you have, if you tally up all the votes and somebody, a political candidate gets a majority on the first runoff, the election is over. There's no need to go ahead and re, reallocate and count ballots again because you already have a majority. And, some of, and there's a lot of benefits to having RCV because you actually get a true majority because not everybody likes everything that a particular political candidate has to say in terms of a platform, but you might like some other parts of another candidate's platform. So this also forces political candidates to go ahead and have platforms that have a broad-based appeal, what we like to call populist platforms, pop, pop, you know, platforms that serve the people and not the elites. And Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto talked about the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. The, populist, um, the populists' platforms represent the bourgeoisie, the, the, I'm sorry, the proletariat, the working class. They don't represent the bourgeoisie or the elites or the ruling class or the oligarchs or the 1%. So what it also does in terms of political campaigns, it forces political candidates to actually have platforms that people will want to vote for. It forces pe- political candidates to have policies rather than pejoratives. Let me make sure I understand so everybody understands that policies over pejoratives. So instead of lobbing insults, you actually have to have to have some substance with your campaign. You actually have to have something that people actually want to vote for. With this sort of right choice voting system, you also end up, you eliminate what's called the spoiler effect. So you eliminate votes from a this political duopoly that we seem to have in the United States. Plurality. Plurality, yeah. You, you end up you end up with, you end up not having to have people voting for an, a, a party that t- potentially takes away votes from one of the two big parties that we seem to have in the United States. And not that I like doing that. What are you, what are we, how are we doing on time? We probably got about eight to 10 minutes left. Okay. Then. You, I, I didn't know when that. Uh... Oh, no, no, no. The alarm went off a few minutes ago. And I, but, you know, the DJ timing still goes on. We still got it up here. Um, um, yeah, but the last thing that, that RCV does, and it's perfect for this situation, it eliminates voting for the lesser of two evils. It eliminates voting for the lesser of two evils. There's a quote by 
former New York Times writer and Pulitzer Prize winner, author of about a dozen books, guy named Chris Hedges, who I think is an absolute genius. Well, Chris Hedges says, in the American political system, you don't vote for what you want, you vote against what you hate. In an RCV, with RCV, with ranked choice voting, you can actually feel comfortable with voting for a particular political candidate because their platform, their ideas and values most closely represent you, as opposed to going in a voting booth and then having to use hand sanitizer because you feel absolutely dirty and disgusting about who you just voted for. Right, I think we all felt that one in 2016. Many of us, not everybody, but some some Bernie, uh, Bernie supporters like myself, you know, I, I worked with the campaign for five years um, mm-hmm. and it uh, was really, it, it, it woke me up to so much of progressive ideas around Absolutely. voting, around um, our government and how we operate. And, uh, you know, whether they're all right or they're all possible, I don't know, but at least I'm, at least we're thinking outside the box, which I do encourage people to do. Um, do we, uh, what do you feel like we should go, should we, you know, I think I think the last thing I wanted to mention with RCV is that, you know, and, and I guess money is obviously important, especially with this pandemic right now, and electoral polit- electoral politics. It saves money, because if you reach a majority, you don't have to go out and recampaign to get people to vote for you again. Once you get that fifty percent plus one, that's it. So you don't have to recampaign. So RCV creates from you know the research that you see involved in this and just empirical evidence it creates a more politically educated electorate maybe less of the two-party system possibly as well and 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 it 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 eliminates a two-party system because in a two-party system you wouldn't need to have a ranked choice voting situation it would just be a winner take all so you couldn't do it with just two parties anyway with rcv you couldn't do it with that. But and then we're going to kind of wrap it up with this topic is, I know I mentioned this earlier, you mentioned, we mentioned the Knight Foundation study and the Knight Foundation did uh, a project called the 100 Million Project, where there are 100 million people in the United States who do not participate in the voting process. Now, of the approximately 330 million people that we have in the United States, there are 250 million people that are of eligible voting or in voting age population, basically 18 years of age and older. But of that 250 million, 230 million are eligible to vote. Now, in the 2016 election, I had to write some of this stuff down here because I can't remember everything. Of the in the 2016 election, 65.8 million people voted for Hillary Clinton. Another 62.98 million, approximately, voted for President Trump. Now, that would mean, and there were 138.8 million ballots that were counted. So of an estimated 230 million people that are eligible to vote, 138.8 million people actually participated in voting. So voting turnout in the United States during the previous election was around 60%. And for, for an industrialized nation like the United States, that is incredibly low voter turnout. Now, to kind of highlight some of the, some of the some more percentages so you really get an idea so the numbers make a bit more sense, in terms of people, of el- the percentages of eligible voters, 27.3% of eligible voters, so that, that's that 230 million number, voted for Donald Trump. 
28.5% of eligible voters voted for Hillary Clinton. 2.9% of eligible voters voted for other people. They voted for Joel Stein. They might have voted for, for Gary Johnson. They might have voted for a constitutional party candidate. They might have voted for you as a write-in candidate, Richard. Who knows? That's entirely possible. Yeah, I'll, you let me know if you did, guys. Please do. Please do. Please do. But 41.3% of eligible voters did not participate in voting at all. So if you think about that, that more people didn't vote than people who voted for either Clinton or Trump. That, that's, so part of the reason why we want to make sure we have this conversation is to make sure that people actually do get out and vote. And the Knight Foundation study was quite interesting. I didn't read all 88 or 98. It was a, quite a long study and a lot of data and a lot of charts, but some major reasons why people don't vote. Richard, you mentioned this is lack of faith in the election, election system. There's the doubt of how much impact people's vote actually is going to have. And something else you mentioned earlier, Richard, about p the electorate not necessarily understanding what they're voting for. Well, there's the electorate does it, it feels as if the news and the media leaves the body politic or the electorate uninformed. And there seems to be this general malaise or this disinterest in politics. Yeah. Correct. Correct. They just feel as if, okay, hell, what am I actually voting for? Because I, I, my vote doesn't count. My vote doesn't mean anything. What, I'm just one person. What, what can we do about that? What are some solutions that people can start considering? Maybe they don't happen overnight. I think that's something we need to remember is some of these solutions are something we need to get educated on, make moves on, support groups that are looking to make these changes happen, maybe become someone who starts a group, right. could be you. Uh, you know, we, we've got ranked choice voting on the ballot here in Massachusetts to become how we do things. Correct. And so, I mean, two year, two, four years ago, probably wasn't. So it really happens that fast. So. Exactly, exactly. I think some solutions, well, I just mentioned earlier that there's a whole lot of people that don't feel as if they're engaged in the political process. Part of the way you get, you, you, you speak out, you reach those 92 or 93 million people that didn't, or that 41.3% that didn't vote in 2016, is to find candidates, political candidates with populist ideas that speak to those people that feel as if their vote doesn't matter. Find, find political candidates that will speak to the politically disenfranchised. Progressive as well wouldn't be the worst idea. Yeah, find, find political- Ones that go backwards, those exist as well. Right, find political candidates that are willing to support ranked choice voting or, or, or single payer healthcare or eliminating money in politics or having a universal basic income or ending the wars or legalizing marijuana nationwide or having a demilitarized Green New Deal eliminating gerrymandering and abolishing voter suppression laws is a great way to say, hey, you know what, we're gonna get more people out to vote. We discussed ranked choice voting, but I think one of the best ways I think, this is something I think, certainly think needs to be looked at, is to move election day. Who thought it was a good idea to have election day in the middle of the week in November? Gearing up for the holidays, getting scared. Oh man. Three weeks out from Thanksgiving, the weather might be inclement in certain areas of the United States. If anything, it would almost make sense to have, not, have voting not just take place on one day, but have a voting weekend. And I, I certainly think that voting should take place on Fourth of July weekend. 
right. barbecue. Maybe, you not, know, maybe not a Tuesday. And not a Tuesday, a 4th of July weekend. I mean, could you imagine the, the slogans, barbecues and ballots, go vote. Uh, seems like an obvious situation. So a great, a, a, and plus you don't have to take, have people take time off of work. The weather will be decent. You can cast your ballot in the morning and you can have your bratwurst at night. Not that I eat bratwurst because I'm a vegan, but you get what I'm saying. Well, I also wanted to shout out to, to maybe some younger folks uh, or the, you know, folks walking, watching that have some uh, brothers, sisters, friends that are younger that, um, you know, one in 10 eligible voters this, in this election are from Generation Z. So 18 right. years old to 23 years old. Um, and so, you know, it's like, get, you know, this is a, this is an important moment. Um, it's not just your, I find it's not just my, and this is something AOC suggested is, you know, you find five people right now that are in your circle of friends or that, you know, that maybe won't be voting. It's not really about convincing them to vote for any one person, but just convincing people who may not vote to vote. We can do that and it might be a part of our duty as well. I, I'd go so far as to say, and um, I, I found a quote online, just wanna throw it out there before we wrap up and uh, civic duty voting is a full embrace of democracy. Every citizen has a role to play in our nation's public life and in constructing our future. And you know, that's what, that's what Joe and I connect on together around voting, and we hope you do too. And, and we, we see there to be an opportunity for us as voters to, not, to see we can participate in, in changing this country, really. And I, I want people to remember that. I think Absolutely. people lose faith in that. And, exactly. and it's been done time and again, and we are more connected and educated and uh, capable than ever. We just got to stay positive and anything else, Joe? Um, first of all, thank you for getting this organized. Thanks to all the festival organizers to allow us this time for, to share what we know about voting. And um, if you have any questions or you want to reach out to me, you can catch me Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, SoundCloud, Mixcloud, Joe Nice DJ, J-O-E-N-I-C-E-D-J. I'm not hard to find. I'm around. If you have any questions or if you're like, hey, you know what? I don't like what you said or whatever. I'm around. My direct messages are open. I'm hard to find. Um, if you yep. reach out, I reach back. It's that easy. I'm Ranch. Ranchard Guerra is my Instagram. See if you can figure out how to spell that. And uh, also at Real Fear and Loving on Instagram, Facebook. Yep. Look us up on YouTube. And uh, we are, we're going to be back with more, more chats. As Joe says, live and direct. Um, yep. Yeah, let's talk Absolutely. to you guys soon. All right. Thanks. Peace.